For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are talking to one of the creators, someone who uses a combination of science and experience to craft clubs that are as much works of art as they are precision instruments. These innovators work with the best players in the world and factor in data from players of all levels to design clubs that perform consistently, player to player, and shot to shot. I'm pleased to welcome Marnie Inez, the Director of Irons Development for Titleist Golf Club's R&D. Marnie, welcome to the range. Thank you for having me once again. Always a pleasure. Let's start at the very beginning. How did you get started playing golf? Oh my gosh. Wow. So I did not grow up with a golf club in my hand. Although upon looking at some old pictures with my parents, I did come to find out that my dad played at a pretty early age, you know, and that would be in his teenage years. I found some pictures of him, um, you know, playing golf. And even upon further investigation, I found a picture of myself as a toddler with a plastic golf club in my hand. And with where I'm at now, when I, when I found this picture, this is well after I was in, into golf, but I said, dad, what, what's this? What happened here? You see, the signs were there. You know, it's like we could have started much earlier. And actually, the story for me getting into golf was just after college, actually. And the thing was, I had a friend in college who said, hey, do you play golf? And I said, no, not really. My grandfather plays golf, and I, I just never looked at golf as a sport for me. He's like, no, you need to play golf. And... Um, so within uh, an hour, I'm over at his house and we cruise on down to sports arena. So you're, you're local, right? So, you know, you know, sports arena, there's a, a pro golf discount down there. Mm -hmm. It's like that right there, buy that. And I said, okay, it was like $89. It's a tour power Dunlop set, 14 clubs with the bag. And within a couple of hours, we're on the first tee at Mission Bay Golf Course. And so, of course, I'm rolling it around, right? But I think it's out in the 12th or 13th hole. I can't remember. It's been so long since I played there. I tee up the three wood in this set. And I just pure one down the middle of the fairway. And I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. <laughs> And so we finished that round. And of course, you know, with, with my personality, it's like golf is the perfect kind of thing. It's like it's something to, to try and perfect. It's something to work on all the time. So from then on, it was like go to the range, get the magazines, look at, you know, you're looking at all the instructional stuff you can, you know, and just trying to get into this game. And the thing was at that time, so within – 
three to four months time, I'm thinking to myself, you know what, it'd be really fun to get in and design this equipment because, you know, you look at it and it's like, wow, there's some interesting stuff going on. This was when Olimar had, had, had uh, made a name for themselves. Um, so there's all this talk about aerospace materials and tongue and stuff like that. And then um, also TaylorMade was also getting into tungsten and Callaway with titanium then. And so that's when I started throwing my resume out for the golf companies. And eventually, you know, um, TaylorMade was the, the one who came calling. There's so much there that sounds familiar. For me, it was a nine iron at Presidio Hills the first time I played there in Old Town, San Diego. First, mm-hmm. The first non-par three course I played was, in fact, Mission Bay. So I know exactly go. what you're talking about. I played there without even having a wood in the bag, just a set of irons and a putter. So it, it's amazing how one little afternoon could essentially change your life. It did. Yeah, it's crazy. Put me on this path, right? And it's and it was funny because it was like I came to realize that not all golf courses you could play at night. <laughs> Because they have they have lights at Mission Bay and the, the lights came on, you know, because it was getting becoming late, uh, early evening uh, towards the end of the round. And I just thought it was the greatest thing. You earned your degree in mechanical engineering. So when you talk about the idea of going to work in the industry and sending out your resume, this wasn't out of the blue. I mean, this really fit right into your wheelhouse. It did. It did. And that's the thing with about the game and looking at the equipment critically as an engineer. It's like, wow, you know. This stuff is pretty cool. It seems to be getting more, more complex, more, more, there's more technologies, more materials being involved. Of course, yeah, I mean, um, I basically, you know, started playing and, and getting into golf at a time when golf technology was starting to really blossom. So it was really a great, great time to get into the industry. Well, and it it fit your desires. I mean, one, you started having a love for golf, but two, I'm sure everything that drove your engineering background was because you had a love for that sort of science and now you could apply it. Yes, absolutely. And, and the thing, you know, the job I was in before was sort of ran me through a a large gamut of things. I think we talked about it It was large, large format inkjet printers was the company I was at. Um, That's the product they were designing at the time. And that runs you through, you know, different types of processes, materials, from fluid dynamics to heat transfer. I mean, all, all sorts of things for a mechanical engineer to go nuts with. But when I could combine, you know, my engineering passion with the passion for this game, you know, this, the obsession for this game, really, you know, it, it was a win-win, right? So you find a spot at TaylorMade. What was your first project? How did you walk in the door? Wow, the first project. Um, first project was really the finishing up the 300 series irons. So I don't know if you remember the 300 forged. And along with that, there was a 320 and a 360 cast product. They involved the, the, um, the infancy of what became the cartridge technology for TaylorMade. So there were these, you know, little little pills of weights within the sole with a urethane around them. And the idea was that it would give a um, auxiliary mass damping to the head. 
right? So there were five little pills in there. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't remember if you remember the marketing for this stuff, but that was, that was essentially the first project that, that we worked on. Um, there was also finishing up the uh, tour preferred wedges back then. This was a wedge that had tungsten weights embedded in the, um, in the top line of the club uh, and top line of the wedge. I don't know if you remember that as well. Um, and then on the putter side, I'm trying to think what the first putter was. Gosh, so long ago. Um, that one's harder to remember because uh, there were a few putters before Rosa came along, but, you know, Rosa was a big, you know, splash, and, and that's really what's coming to mind right now. Um, and, and then AGSI and, then, and on and on from there, right? Right. No, and, and at TaylorMade, I mean, they really drove innovation hard. Uh, the big growth was on the Metalwood side, and you're working with irons. I know that there was an internal messaging and goal to become the number one iron brand. How strong was that push for, for, for you and the design teams? I mean, it was pretty hard. I mean, I, won't, I wouldn't say there was like a company message per se for that um, because, because the marketing message, at least from my standpoint, was really hard around the Metalwood and being number one on tour and Metalwoods and so on and so forth. But internally, I believe that our team strived, you know, we looked at, we looked at them and go, hey, you know, what about us, right? It's like, and, and we pushed ourselves to become number one uh, in irons as well. I mean, because like, hey, we see that it's possible in, in the other categories. So why not, why not irons as well, right? And um, so, of course, we look at different, different uh, technologies, just like the Metalwood team did. We're looking at the competition to see how we stack up. And um, yeah, I think for any, anybody who's in product development, especially something as competitive as, as golf is, you are striving to, you know, always get better, get more market share, be more popular amongst your core audience, so on and so forth. Well, I think one of the big jumps in terms of irons really went when the R7 irons came out that it really signaled a big statement that TaylorMade was in this ballpark. Yep, yep. And it, and it was one thing, too. Again, you can see how, how TaylorMade uses their, their marketing strategy um, it was a push where the the quote unquote metalwood technology of having inverted comb mm -hmm. was drafted into the irons, right? And so that was kind of like the infancy of trying to get more um, spring-like effect out of the faces and and trying to to connect this message of distance, which was very well stated and publicized in the driver and drafting off of that message in irons through, through the similarity of the design. But, you know, we're, we're still, as, as an iron team, you're still trying to, um, you know, be very specific in terms of that type of product's goals. And it started to really show that there could be completely different areas within irons, that you had your forged concept that could be improved, but essentially was something that was tried and true in the industry to something where now you were constructing with, with a face insert and everything else that it became kind of like, as you say, a metal wood concept in an iron shape. Correct. Correct. And um, I don't know if you remember 
other product that really br- comes to mind for me back then was the CGB mm-hmm. iron, right? So that iron is, was an iron where, again, you're trying to, to bring more COR to that iron. It was face insert. It was thin. It was using a different material for the face. Um, and, and on top of it, using, using weighting as well to try and, try and improve the mass properties there as well. You know, so um, that to me was, and, and, and as a total package, again, that was one iron that was kind of went up in price point right. and afforded itself a custom design shaft for that head design, right? It, it, it was also uh, utilizing, I don't know if they called it an ascending mass, but it was, it was something like that back then, progressive. Well, in the progressive sets, I mean, became a staple as as time went on in your later days there. Mm-hmm. You also worked with wedges, and the the wedge that I think really jumped out that people caught notice that TaylorMade was making wedges was the rack wedges. Um, obviously, I, I've had some way back in the day. I recently had Jose Miraflor on the show, and we talked about how he actually grinded me wedges based off of pictures that I sent him from Florida. So I, I remember those wedges well. But when you talk about you know your early wedge projects, there was a, quite an evolution over your time there. Yeah, definitely. And Rack was an interesting one, too, because it was when we, back at TaylorMade, the, the, uh, the research team or, or our research, our research engineers, right? So there was a research engineer on, on each specific product category back then, you know, um, I think now there's just a pure research group, but, um, the research engineer for irons started getting into more in-depth study of sound vibration, you know, that sort of thing. And, how how that affects the feel of a golf club and rack was it stands for relative amplitude coefficient and it was something that was developed um, when they sort of discovered a signature right that led to a, a preferred result right so there was a there was a sound vibration signature that was studied that led to a preferred result in terms of feel. And, you know, of course the marketing guys were all over that. Well, why don't we call it rack? You know, and they came up with the little dial um, indicator uh, logo for that, which was, which was pretty cool. But it was, it had a very unique look for a wedge. Had these cutouts in the back, you know, these eyes, if you want to call them that. Um, And it was, yeah, it was definitely unique for its time in that in that category. And it was also the first place where I really got to learn more about shaping and what um, golfers really are looking at in terms of the shape and, and being really, really picky about toe shapes, you know, the hosel blends, you know, top line shaping, you know, not not just not just thickness or width, but but also how it comes over from the face over to the back and, and things you can do with the angles and the, and the shape of that being flatter versus rounder and what that, what players perceive from all these subtle differences. Um, Yeah. Between that and, and working on the 300 forged iron as well, 
those two really put me through the ringer as far as uh, getting a greater understanding of shaping in general. The third area that you worked on there at TaylorMade, you mentioned it was the Rosa line of putters, and they were really innovative for their time, weren't they? There was a lot of things going on there, that's for sure. We had started by looking at inserts, of course, and um, you know we had inserts that we had made in different colors, right? And one of the ones that I actually own in a prototype actually has a blue, has a blue coating on the outside, you know, and and it had, it even had um, the nubbins on it, right? So it was a blue metallic insert with metallic, you know, bumps on it too. And the thing was, was like, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, it looks cool and, and it removes weight from the middle so that you can increase the MOI because it's a lighter weight material than, than the rest of the head. Um, but I remember back then, um, eventually making our way to red color, took the nubbins off because we don't want to, we don't want to connect, you know, the new stuff to the old, right. <laughs> to the old stuff. And um, I remember the first X prototype that we had made for tour going to Ernie Els, right? And so Ernie Els shows up at, at some tournament playing this, this product called X prototype with a red um, lightweight metallic insert in it. And it just took off from there because the, the interest, the, the visibility on TV, you know, the, the fact that it's, it was such a visual thing as well um, that, you know, the other players are like, what's that? You know, what's that about? And they'd want to try it. So they'd try it. And then, you know, it took off from there. And then that's where that whole part of the business was spun off uh, into, into Rosa. It's funny because you go from Rosa, red, to ghost putters, where you saw the first incarnation of a white putter with TaylorMade. You were there as you saw the idea of white clubs coming into the world of golf. Yep. Absolutely. It, it showed up there in putters and it was, again, it's just such a, it was such a visual thing where uh, having, having that visual and, and you can, you can see the signature in TaylorMade, right? Even from before I got there, my first driver from them was a tie bubble too. And it has this like copper color. On it. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because like um, when when they had decided to go away from that in the 300 series, was it 300 series? Yeah, 300 series drivers. There was this rebirth of the brand, right? And they came out with the, the, the new logo, the new tailor-made logo. Everybody's like, what are we doing? Why are we going away from the copper? Because it's such, you know, it's such a vis visible signature, but it was an old color. And so now with the putter, you know, again, here's another one that they found that people latch onto, you know, and, and there was a visual thing to the white as well, you know, um, framing the golf ball and, and just being uh, a contrast against the green, against the black sight line. It's just everything about white was, was leading to it being just, again, another innovative um, product that has this visual nature to um, the differences in the product. And, um, and it took off from there. But even prior to that, you know, you had, you had um, 
you know, the, the, the spider stuff in Rosa, right? So the spider putter, that was a whole nother uh, can of worms from design where we had come up with a, a design to really maximize the MOI of a putter within the legal footprint. And so that was a pretty big, pretty big putter. And when we, the prototype, I'll tell you right now, looked nothing like what the industrial designers came up with. And the thing was, when that, when that design came back, there was definitely a polarizing effect of that design. You know, there were, there were people on both sides just going, whoa, I don't know. This thing is just, it's pretty out there. Uh, it looks it looks very <laughs> odd compared to anything that's out there. But again, um, from the marketing side of things and from the engineering side of things, both, it's like, well, we have something that's definitely unique here. It's unique in its properties, performance properties, and it's unique in how it looks. And usually that formula for, for TaylorMade is one that, you know, they – they run with, right? Because it's like, well, we do want to be somewhat polarizing, right? We want to put stuff out there that makes people go, what's that? What is that about? You know, I think I need to try it. Even though I'm, you know, I may not like, you know, what I'm seeing at first, I'm going to go try it, right? In 2010, you really stepped away from that. I mean, you moved across Carlsbad to join Titleist, kind of the opposite of creating a polarizing club that they're traditional. What was your first project working with Titleist? First project there was was um, finishing up the 712 um, iron designs there. So that would be AP1, AP2. There was a muscle back and a forged cavity back as well. Um, and then beginning to work on that product um, uh, called the 712U, right? Because there was, and that was really a product where I got to see a difference in being able to work with the tour much more closely at Titleist. And the thing was, I got to know a few players. I got to see a few players using a rather old utility iron in their bag old low-tech product called the 503i and there were probably yeah a good handful of them out there and so i went to my boss and i was like hey i see these old irons in people's bag and they're all telling me that there's a place for this type of iron in their bag i said we should design a new one for them and you know my boss's attitude is great in that he's like well why don't you make something and we'll test it with them and see where it goes from there, right? And, and that's how the 712U was born, was essentially us coming up with a new uh, utility type iron to replace the 503i. And that was the first kind of hollow construction, fully hollow, like, I mean, from heel to the toe um, product that, that um, I had worked on their Titleist, and from there you can see the number of products and where the products have gone since then in terms of using a hollow construction to uh, maximize performance. Your first model you talk about was, was the 712 line, and, and that was really the introduction of AP1, AP2, 
And that line is obviously continued through, but at the same time, you spent time really starting to tinker with the idea of hollow head construction. So you had two very different concepts going on at the same time that you were working on both. Right. And that's the thing is like, um, you know, my boss and the company, they're, they're open, they're open to just exploring, you know, technology and in all backed by, we're looking for performance enhancement, right? How can we enhance the performance of our irons? So if that means we can create another product, right? And especially if you see a need, right? So, and in the case of the 712U, the hollow construction there, there was a need for this product because why would you want your players playing something that's old and low tech when, when they can explain what they're looking for in a, in a certain part of their bag, that makes us in engineering and R&D very focused. It's like, okay, we have the target. We know what they want there. Let's develop something for them and go. And so in, in that respect, it was very focused product and very targeted. And, um, you know, that's why I think it was successful because there was something very concrete that we were going after. One thing that differentiates tailor-made and Titleist, and this is something that most consumers wouldn't recognize, but you recognize as an engineer, is you essentially were on two-year product cycles, not annual product cycles. Right. So I imagine that that allowed you as an engineer to really dig deep and come up with ideas that might take a little bit of time to work out, but you had that time. Definitely. There's definitely more time. And and the, the way... Um, Titleist is set up versus the way TaylorMade is set up, set up. It's very, it was very different when I first moved over. And the two, two year product life cycles definitely afford you more time to do more studies, to get more feedback from your previous product um, in order to try and, and make meaningful change from the feedback that you're getting and then combine it with any studies, new technologies or processes that, that you, you found in the meantime to then make the next generation, right? And at, at, at TaylorMade, it was, it was very fast paced. And as you can see back then, especially, um, there was this, you know, one, one product to the next, it's like the technology could be completely different, the name, the series of, of irons were completely different. The marketing was different. Um, and there was just a different focus maybe on a completely different technology versus with Titleist, I feel like we try to build upon the technologies that we develop and we add to. And it's something that I've said um, in other, in other uh, interviews is that we try to use our technologies and and if they truly work, they should always work. Right? You should you should be able to add add on to them and make a, an even better golf club. The only place where you might see a technology disappear would be is that you found another technology that completely trumps the old one in the same performance area, right? But even then, it's, it's hard for me to imagine what that would be, right? Because if, if something works, then it should continue to work going forward. And, and 
be, become one of your building blocks for your designs. Well, it's funny you put it that way because, of course, if you can imagine it, then you want to make it a reality. So something that's going to replace it is something you can't imagine. That kind of leads to the concept line that you really introduced with the C16, where you were given free reign for another line of clubs where it was like, let's take all of our best tech, let's throw it into a pot, and let's see what we can come up with. Right, right. And it, it, it was, it was a really cool idea that was pitched to us because, I mean, what more could you want as an engineer where they're saying, hey, go for it, you know, look for the materials, look for the processes, don't hold back on like, you know, an amount amount of material and and the cost itself is not something that that you need to worry about here. It's just like go out and try and make the best iron you can. And that was a really neat challenge in that, um, wow, now we're going to start looking at a bunch of materials that we never thought we'd be able to use before because of cost, right? And looking through all these materials and testing all these materials to see which one would make, you know, um, a very good face face material especially right because that was something we knew we wanted to make this iron uh, go far right because of the, the placement of this iron was it wasn't going to be like uh, a really like tour tour focused iron this was something that someone who was probably more more established in years would would buy because they have more disposable income and it would be a more forgiving product and a more distance focused product than, than, uh, you know, say AP two or, or other designs along those lines. And, um, you know, to come up with the, the material that we did for that one, it was a forge material. It was, uh, an interesting forging fa face hosel in that there were two different materials within the same forging. And that was allowing us to get the strength, out of the face and the speed, but also give us a hosel that was bendable for our custom business because you know we do quite a bit of custom business in irons at uh, Titleist. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure we do almost three to one custom you know orders versus you know kind of off the shelf stuff. We talk about the concept line. If people want more information about that. We have a completely separate conversation at the golf spotlight where we get into that. So we don't need to talk about it here, but you mentioned AP one and AP two, because that was one of the initial things that you worked on. Yes. It's said, especially for amateur golfers, that it's not about how good you do things. It's about how well you do your bad things. Right. That, that determines how good a player you are. And that's kind of the evolution here is. The AP1, AP2 that came out in 2011 was great clubs, but the newer models are going to be more forgiving. They're going to allow for the mistakes to still leave you in good positions to score. Right, right. And, and that's the thing is if you, look at, if you look at these clubs before to now, if you were to look at a 2008, even up to 2012, a 712, AP1 versus looking at say the T300, which is the same category now. And you look at the sets side by side again, again, maybe if you just looked at the four iron shape and size, you'd be like, okay, it's kind of similar. Although if you looked at the offset 
you know, the shaping of these clubs, we're always evolving our shaping to try and give what we believe is a very pleasing, um, I don't want to use the word classic, but it's just, it's a shape that I think um, your better player can look at and go, I like that shape. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, there are certain iron designs out there where we can all say that if, if we put it in front of a better player, they'd probably just go, you know, that shape is not for me. No, thank you. But we, we, I mean, you might've seen Justin Thomas had a, uh, a T300 iron in his bag. So that'll tell you for someone who uses muscle backs as their primary iron set, for him to be able to throw that in on the top end of his set, very specific course setups, right, where he's using that club. And I'm not even quite sure exactly where it is because the first, first tournament that he's, he's pulled it out, right? And the thing is, I do believe it just affords him a little bit uh, different performance window versus our utility iron series. Mm -hmm. So, and with his swing, it just works, right? So it's, but it's interesting to, to look at that, that even for our products in that category, a tour player can look at that and go, I can put that in my bag. I can look at that, I can play it, because we all know there are club designs where it's just not gonna make it in, you know, just based on looks alone. You've mentioned the pros, you've mentioned it previously as part of the design process is working with professionals. Do you remember the first pro you worked with? Mm, the first pro at Titleist? First pro? Both, in general and at Titleist. Um, the, there were only a couple that I worked with at TaylorMade, and one of them was um, Mike Weir. Okay. An interesting character, left-handed, so that... that that posed the difficulty to begin with, right? Because um, as a right-handed golfer, shaping shaping an iron for a left-hander is just it's just just a bizarre thing, you know. And fortunately for me, I had a teammate uh, back at TaylorMade who was left-handed, and I sort of like pawned the um, the approval of shapes for left-handed uh, clubs to him. I said, hey. <laughs> Mike, if these look good to you, they're good to go, you know, and we just did it that way, you know, but Mike Weir was a very uh, interesting character because I think he had played Hogan's before that, some custom ground Hogan irons, um, very old. And so it was an exercise again of trying to shape something for him and getting that that right first and foremost before we even were worrying about how it was performing down the road because with those guys especially it's like if there's something about the club that and looks wise that they don't like it's um is just not psychologically i'm not going to say all tour players are this way but but a good number if they don't like what they're seeing when they put the club down psychologically it's just going to be hard for it to make it into their bag um, and then for Titleist, uh, one of the first players that I worked with there actually was at a tournament in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, Webb Simpson. You might know him. Mm -hmm. And he, he had the same swing back then, and I did, 
he had not he was not um, nearly as consistent as he is now. I mean, he's one of the one of the best ball strikers on tour today. But back then, I just remember testing with Webb because, um, and I don't know if he was tired or or what, but he was struggling a little bit with you know. Uh, giving me some good shots, you know, on the seven iron is, and it was definitely not what I expected. Right. Because I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, it's like, uh, I'm thinking to myself, like he must be tired because, you know, I don't think he'd be out here on tour, you know, if he's not able to hit, you know, a few seven irons, you know, it's, it was just very, very odd, but, you know, very nice, a young man and a very um, good introduction to the type of players that our company seeks out. You know, they, there's, there has been a, um, there's just a character to the players that are, are on our staff that a lot of them are just, or most of them actually are just, they're just willing to help. They understand that R&D is part of the process and that if they um, test for us, that we'll have a better shot at giving them a product that works for them. And, and, that, and that, that also speaks to our tour reps, their relationships with our players in enrolling them as part of, in part of, this, as part of this process. And um, because it is, before COVID, it's very easy to call up our tour rep and say, hey, I need some testing. Can I come out? And they say, of course. And they would they would talk to a number of players and have them lined up for you to be able to you know gather some some data from tour players because there's there's nothing in my opinion that's more valuable. You know, it, it's just um, it makes your job a lot easier as a club designer. We always like to wrap up our talks here on the range by jumping into the Wayback Machine oh and looking at your portfolio. So excluding your current models, which are the best, I mean, they've evolved into being the best. Is there one club, one design that really has a special sentimental feeling for you inside? Maybe is there a favorite all-time design that you have uh, have as a club? Wow, 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 wow. Other than the current models, you said. Other than the current models, because we know those have evolved to be the best. Yes, yes. It's tough because it's like, yeah, I think I'm always thinking about what's in my bag, right? Um, the Actually, you know what? Because of the way it was born, the TMB has a special place for me. Um, and again, it was born out of this just search for um, something new and well let me tell you the story so the story is we talked about 712u that was kind of the rebirth of the modern utility iron for titleists um, we then developed the tmb um, as a utility iron line and the thing was when we started testing it, so first we developed the utility irons as long irons. It was two, three, four, and five, five iron. We then developed the rest of the set because we found a, a man named Brett Rumford on, on the European tour. 
he had every single one in his bag, two, three, four, five. And his question to the tour reps in Europe was, where's the rest of the set? And it's like, hmm. And so it made us think, it's like, would you really play the whole set if we made the whole set? And he's like, sure, if they perform like this, right? And so from there, it's like, okay, we'll develop the rest of the set. And we, we show it to our, our marketing team. And, you know, it was, it was kind of an odd new thing. And, of course, our Japan headquarters, they, like, raised their hand. They're like, hey, we'll, we will take that product and sell it. You know, give that product to us, you know. And so the full set started in Japan there. And, again, it kind of took off as this kind of unique – I mean, and if you, if you remember the original um, – look to that iron was had this very dark pvd kind of uh bow tie on the lower half of the club mm-hmm. that kind of um told golfers say hey, there's something else going on with this club it's not just a muscle back right and it kind of you know a lot of players would ask hey is that is that waiting out there it's like no that's that's a finish on the outside of the club but it is conveying the message that there is a lot of weight concentrated inside this head and so it was this unique combination of a muscle looking club so in your bag everybody who had these in their bag was like oh look at you you know you're playing something that are those blades you know it'd be a question you know most people would have and and so you have that look combined with all this technology right so it was something that Everything was kind of like under the hood, right? Except for that finish on the outside that, that lets you know that there was something different about it. And um, so from there, again, um, we made that full set. It started getting traction on the PGA Tour. Guys like Peter Malnati, Cameron Smith. And they're using this product that was basically, you know, it wasn't on anyone's specific product plan it was just kind of born out of a need you know and i love working for a company that can see a need that can you know allow its r&d to develop something put it out there and they find the place for it right and and there are many many golfers playing tmb today that are very happy with that product Marnie, I know our audience loves hearing about the stories behind these clubs. I know I do. And and for a lot of people, these are clubs that they love. They have a special place in their heart. So to hear the backstory is really enjoyable. You've certainly been an integral part of some amazing designs. Uh, thanks for joining me here on The Range. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. That was Marnie Inez, the Director of Irons Development with Titleist Golf Clubs R&D. Think about it. How many of us started playing golf the way Marnie did? on a whim. And the next thing we know, it's a huge part of our lives. For Marnie, for me, for many others, it actually became a part of our careers. Golf can bring a lot of great things, and I for one am thankful to have stumbled upon this great, great game. It may seem like a dream falling in love with golf and turning it into your career. Another dream many golfers share is to tee it up at Augusta National, and this week, those dreams at least become more visual as the pros return for the most rare of occurrences, the Masters in November. What can we expect? Bryson DeChambeau's gonna hit bombs. 
Dustin Johnson will play like, well, DJ. Phil Mickelson playing all over the course, trying to scramble his way to low scores, and Fred Couples showing that smooth swings can really last forever. As for the reigning champion Tiger Woods, we don't know, but we can always hope for that magic that only Tiger can produce. But here, in the middle of football season, we can also expect to see an American original with a potentially all-new array of fall foliage dominate the sports landscape. And without fans, we can expect something previously never before conceived, a Masters without the roars. It should be phenomenal for us, as it always is. Who knows, it may be even better. Enjoy it, because I know I certainly will. If you want to know more about golf equipment, subscribe to us on YouTube at The Golf Spotlight. For the latest on the range, follow us on Instagram. Again, it's The Golf Spotlight. We're also on Twitter, at Golf Spotlight. We always welcome your comments anytime as well. They've listened this far, so subscribe to the range on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That'll do it for this episode of The Range, so let's hit the course and appreciate what went into those irons. And we'll talk to you next time, right here on The Range. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.